dear. They're everywhere. And our relationship with them is, well, complicated. Some of us love to look at them, take pictures of them, have them around. Some people hunt them for sport or for food. Some only see them as Bambi, and some hit them with their cars. Accidentally, of course. Some want them as far away from their yards, crops, or gardens as possible. Love them or hate them, they're here to say. But how much do we really know about them? That's what today's show is about. Deer. Everything from antler to tail. Starting with, what makes a deer a deer? Um... So, <laughs> what defines a deer? Um, that voice you're hearing so, is today's special guest, Rhiannon Curtin. She's a master's student studying deer, soon to be done and undoubtedly moving on to bigger and better things. And she's worked in the US, Canada, and Australia. She's also the co-founder of Black Mammologist Week. She's pretty much always been interested in animals. According to my mom, my first word was tiger, um, which seems like a strange thing. But <laughs> when we were little kids, we had that, um, you know when you can get that like tape border that you put around your bathtub? Yeah. And it had tigers on it. <laughs> so I'm gonna presume that's what prompted the word tiger from myself. Um, Rhiannon says she's been pretty heavy into nature for as long as she can remember. I grew up in rural England and rural Australia. So um, I spent a lot of time outside, whether it was at the beach or in the woods. And lots of my friends lived on farms. So I used to go and like milk cows and stuff semi-regularly. As far as science goes. You know, when you're like five and someone says, what do you want to do as a job? Yeah. I always wanted to be a vet. And if you've listened to the show for a while, you know that's a fairly consistent pattern that we've seen. And then when I got to about 16, I did work experience at a vet. And I really liked the large animal side of it. But the small animals and like all the pet owners, I was like, you know, I don't think this is for me. Um, and I wanted to be a wildlife vet. and that's even harder to get into than regular veterinary practice. So I decided to become a zoologist instead. We kind of agreed the whole vet thing probably has to do with exposure. A lot of people who end up going the path of wildlife started not knowing that there was any animal-oriented career paths outside of being a vet. It is super common. We did, um, as part of Blackbirders Week, we did a birds versus fish live with the National Aquarium yeah. and they said, well, how did you get into this line of work? And I think like four out of five of us said, oh, well, originally we wanted to be a vet and then now we're here. <laughs> she mentioned Blackbirders Week. Now, originally this interview was done in, I don't know, July or August of 2020. So it's been a while, but it was right on the heels of the very first ever Blackbirders Week. And so naturally, our conversation had to take a detour away from deer to talk about all of the amazing things that were happening. Uh, but just because it's December 2021 doesn't mean it's any less relevant or important now. So uh, here it goes. So yesterday I was reminded of a, of a quote that that are really, really really, 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 really deeply like. And it's a James Baldwin quote that he, he once wrote. And it's, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing 
can be changed until it is faced. And you, you were a part of a group of scientists who, who did put on Black Birders Week, um, uh-huh. Black AF and STEM. You, you did the uh, the call with the aquarium. Uh, you've done a lot of things, really, uh, <laughs> like a lot, a lot of things. Um, and it's it's been shining a massive spotlight on on different issues of, of access, exclusion, racism in general, and and STEM and the outdoors. Just you know, even in outdoor recreation, and. Mm-hmm. Um, What's been what's been really just great to see is is how that work is making sure that we face reality. You know, it's 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 about mm-hmm. pursuit of a more just and inclusive future, and um, it's it's something that's being put out there, up front. You know, with without any without any you know uh, what's the word I'm looking for. It's just, it's just out there. It's being communicated. It's, it's, you know, no one's being quiet. And I'm seeing a lot of, um, people, um, just really coming out of the woodwork and and talking about things and engaging in discussions. And it's, it's great to see. And and the Mm -hmm. work that y'all are doing as a group is just absolutely astonishing. But what I'm curious about is on a more personal level, Uh how, how did that week impact you and how has life been since? Uh, well, life since has been fairly hectic, yeah. um, <laughs> I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it started out as like this group chat idea of let's do this black bird this week. Anna Gifty suggested it after the Christine Cooper incident. And then mm-hmm. Taiki said, well, let's make it a whole week. Um, and that was where it all started. But I don't think any of us ever imagined quite how big it was going Mm -hmm. to get. Um, And even now, it's a month and a bit since the end of Blackbird this week and we're still doing this work and I'm sure that the work will continue for a long time after this um, in various ways. And there are so many people in that group, you know, who are going to take this movement forward, which is really great. So um, it's been crazy, but good. Mm. Um, I think it's been enlightening, I would say, because this is 2020 has been like (laughs) such a train wreck of a year. I said to someone yesterday, I said, I was like, you know, is this what Buffy felt like living next to the hell mouth and like fighting demons all the time? Um, that's literally 2020. It's like living in the hell mouth. But um, <laughs> I think that Black Furnace Week has been like something positive to come out of this year and, um, you know, like gives us hope for the future and that we might actually create change and I don't know if the same impact would have been possible without everyone, you know, being at home and quarantine. So um, that's definitely, and I think people have said the same thing about protests for Black Lives Matter and all these people who have come out and said, well, if this is such a big issue, then why did Black Lives Matter not exist before? And it did. Like yeah. Black Lives Matter has been around <laughs> since 2012 when Trayvon Martin was killed, but mm. it's just had this new wave of attention. Mm. Um, so I'm hoping 
hopeful that we will see real, tangible, meaningful change. I've had conversations with lots of people in my field that suggest that lots of big organisations are paying attention and they are wanting to make a change. Mm -hmm. So I'm hopeful that we'll actually see that sometime in the near future. Yeah, yeah. I saw the uh, Osprey thing. Yes. Yeah, that's very cool. I'm very excited (laughs) about Osprey. Um, I backpack and I camp and whatever, but, you know, as a grad student, (laughs) we often don't have the budget to actually buy gear that lasts. Um, And it's this never-ending conundrum of, like, you want to be sustainable and have gear that's going to last you a long time, but it's often not attainable um, as a graduate student. So when they asked me, I was like, you want me? <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, I'm really not that interesting, but um, okay. Super stoked because I've wanted an Osprey backpack forever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very excited and I was just talking with Ali Ward last night and she said her charcos finally came. So <laughs> I'm very excited that the world now knows what charcos are because um, me and Juita both love charcos and uh, we're talking with them too about how charcos as a brand can um, do more in this space and it's very exciting. Yeah. Um, my tacos are in the mail. They're coming. <laughs> <laughs> I've been trying to convince my brother, the co-host of this, to to get some chocolates because we've been doing a lot of canoeing and things. And I <laughs> I love deeply my my tacos. I wear them daily to do See? everything. And Me too. I've been trying to convince him. He's like, "Well, I've got my water shoes." I'm like, "No, get some tacos." Well, I got my water shoes. It's just been a back and forth. No, he needs chakas. They're so (laughs) versatile. Um, And other companies, you know, have reached out to us. Oboz, Mm -hmm. who is a shoe company, they make hiking boots. Um, I actually know of them because I used to work at an outdoor gear store in Australia. But I reached out to them and said, like, can you put Blackbird this week on your story? And they were like, yeah, sure. And would you like to be a truest for us? Um, Which is kind of an ambassador program um, Mm -hmm. with Oboz. And they're doing good work to, like, diversify their marketing. Um, So they're a really great brand too. So I'm, I'm hopeful there are some brands that you see like absolutely nothing from, like yeah. not even a statement. And I'm yeah. like, I see you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but trying to get hold of them is a whole other thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing that we used to just ask people outright, you know, most of the time is, you know, what advice you have for people who you know want to get into science and stuff. Um, yeah. But one of the one of the realities of that, that, you know, is we're trying to take into account um, is it's not just issues of access. It is issues of exclusion. So with that in mind, I mean, how you're trying to, to cope with that. I mean, what is your advice to people in light of that? Um, it's so hard to give advice, I suppose, just because everyone has such diverse experiences. Um, Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, like I grew up in a majority white area um, and my mom is white. Like that came with its own challenges in terms of like our identity and how do we identify um, being black in this very white space. So for us, we experienced racism, you know, when we were little kids and it was just part and parcel of what we dealt with. Um, often lots of microaggressions and that sort of thing. Whereas I guess if you're coming from a background where you have like a big family and you come from a black family and like you come from an area that's very diverse and then you go into academia, which is very white, you're probably going to struggle more than I did because I grew up in like, that was my daily life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd say find community in like other people who are similar to you. If you can, um, if you can't do that, in person, you can do that online. And I'd say that's a big plus of like having social media now compared to when I was growing up or whatever, we didn't really have that um, in the same way. And also I grew up rurally. We didn't get broadband till I was like 13. Um, (laughs) But um, yeah, I definitely just say like, look for community and like look for people who will support you and, that doesn't always have to be your family. Yeah, like most of us online, if people reach out to us, are quite happy to provide that support virtually if we can. So now that we've gotten to know the person behind the voice, that voice, of course, belonging to the wonderful Rhiannon Curtin, we can get back to where we started. Dear. If you're talking about morphological characteristics that define a deer, one of the defining characteristics of a deer is that they have deciduous antlers which means that they fall off every year oh like trees Um, yeah like a deciduous (laughs) tree um whereas animals that have horns they keep their horns and they grow throughout their life so you can tell how old like a big horn ram is by looking at his horns and how many rings there are in the horn whereas you can't do that for deer because they lose them every year um, although they do get bigger over time, so you can age them partially that way. There are some other things, mostly skull characteristics like their dental formula or lack of sagittal crest. And I found this out today, actually, when I was I was like, I'm going to look up what other things I can find. They don't have gallbladders. Each of these things are traits that are shared by other cervidae, but... Deer belong to the order Artiodactyla which are even-toed animals that have hooves. And then Perissodactyla are odd-toed hooved mammals. <laughs> so <laughs> Perissodactyla would be like a horse. Um, they only have one. They don't have two. Um, That's weird to think about. So within <laughs> the order Artiodactyla, there are four naturally occurring taxonomic families in North America, which would be Bovidae, which is like sheep, cattle, mm-hmm. goats, and bison, Antelicopridae, I'm probably pronouncing that horribly, <laughs> um, that's pronghorn, 
And then there's, uh, I can't even pronounce it, collared peccary belong to this family. (laughs) (laughs) It begins with a T and I don't think I can pronounce it. Um, And then cervidae, which is deer, elk, moose, um, reindeer are also cervids. So the deer family is cervidae, even though we don't like, we don't call moose deer, um, but they are deer. They're just really big deer. It's sort of, but not really, but also kind of how all dolphins are whales, but not all whales are dolphins. Um, What about our caribou, like caribou and elk, are they the same? Yes, so they're also servants. So even though they're different, they all share those defining characteristics that we talked about earlier. And there are actually 18 genera in the deer family Mm. and 51 species. Oh, wow. So there's a lot of variability within um, Cervidae. And that's why we have those defining characteristics. So it's like something common in between all of them. And the smallest deer is actually something called a pudu. Um, They're only four kilograms (laughs) heavy. So they're really small um, and they live in South America. I really want to see one because they're really cute. I feel like I've seen those before. They're they're kind of um, like, I don't know how to say this, like higher in the back, if that makes sense. (laughs) It seems like it... um, yeah, bit a bit higher in the back, like their back legs are a bit longer or something. But I that's one of the things I've been wondering. I mean, if it seems like there's deer or types of deer or relatives of deer on virtually every continent, I guess, except for Antarctica. And I don't really know about Australia. Um, so I, I'm not sure. So but I mean, there's actually um, cervids are native to all continents, but Australia and Antarctica. Really? Okay. Um, so Australasia, which would be like Australia and New Zealand, they don't have any native hooved animals. Um, and New Zealand, in fact, doesn't have any native terrestrial mammals. So they have seals and they have bats. But aside from that, there were never any native terrestrial animals. So that's why so many of the birds in New Zealand nest on the ground. Huh. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> deer, deer, they're just so varied too. I mean, they're like, there's a one in, I want to say India that has like the almost vampire looking teeth and I'm blanking on its name. Oh, um, it's a Chinese water deer. They're so goofy looking, but I love them. <laughs> um, so before deer had antlers, which is how we define true deer nowadays, um, Deer actually had tusks first and then over time no, no they lost their tusks and <laughs> had antlers instead. So Chinese water deer actually resemble a more primitive form of like what early deers would look like. What a weird switch in natural <laughs> selection to have to have tusk and then be like, oh no, they're gonna come out the top of my head instead. <laughs> well, I have this big deer book and there's a picture, well, it's an illustration. Um of like what they think deer would have looked like back then. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's some pictures where they have tusks and antlers. And I was like, that's cooler. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, Chinese water deers only have tusks now. 
Oh gosh, that's bizarre. I'm gonna have to look They're at so some cute, of these pictures. Though. Yeah, they are. They're incredibly. Um, so, how ancient are they evolutionarily then, if they're on you know most continents? Quite old. <laughs> no, that's a terrible answer. Um, the earliest artiodactyls, which is even-toed ungulates, mm-hmm. um, they would have been around in the early Eocene, which was fifty-six to thirty-four million years ago. Oh, um, it was a long time. But then, as time went on, they developed. Um, as the world became drier and cooler, there were more and more ruminants. And then um, Eurasian deer, like the Tusculus and Antlerus Dramatherium, mm-hmm. um, are thought to be the primitive ruminants that gave rise to cervids. But the earliest, like, true cervid, which is, like, what we think about as cervids now, um is thought to have appeared in the Miocene, which would have been 23 to 5 million years ago. And in North America, the first true antlered deer was thought to have existed at the close of the Miocene, so about 5 million years ago. So very, very, very long time. (laughs) Yeah, like (laughs) when I was like quite a while, I really meant millions and millions of years. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> not like you know oh they they, they got together back in uh, the 60s or anything like that but <laughs> yeah uh, a really 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 long time yeah so i guess to focus in a bit on north america because i i know that if we were to try to talk about all of them around the world that would get a bit complicated um as a understatement yes. um do we have any idea of population size or like how many deer are in north america so um I will say, I will try to focus the rest of the episode on just white-tailed and mule deer, seeing as those are the things that we colloquially refer to as deer. Um, Makes sense. Although all (laughs) servants are interesting. Um, Yes. (laughs) So white-tailed deer are actually really, really abundant across North America and They are the widest ranging game species in North America. So they're found almost everywhere. Um, They're limited at their northern range by harsh winters and deep snow. Um, But they are found like all the way up through um, British Columbia. And as Jason Fisher and his lab have recently found, they are also starting to become more abundant in the boreal forest. So White-tailed deer in most places now are actually at historic numbers um, and they're above their carrying capacity in much of their range, which then poses new questions for wildlife management about how do we decrease the number of white-tailed deer. Um, And then for mule deer, um, it's a little more variable than for white-tailed deer and it's not quite as clear-cut although I wish it was um, as to how their populations are doing and so the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies have a mule deer working group because mule deer are often found in the western states 
Um, you don't get mule deer out east. And they publish reports every year or so on mule deer populations, but they're broken down by state um, because deer management is often done at a state level. So it's difficult to say it's declining or it's increasing for mule deer. Um, in most cases, it's steady. In some places, it's declining. Um, and some places, they rebounded a little bit and then they declined a bit and now they're kind of stable. Um, so it depends on what region or what state you're looking at for mule deer. Um, but for whitetail, we have tons of them and they are doing very well. That, that doesn't shock me because I feel like I see them more than almost anything. Well, I guess I see squirrels and rabbits probably more, but um, deer <laughs> are a, a solid third. And I've, and I've heard before that technically speaking, um, that uh, a white-tailed deer is the most deadly animal in the United States because of the amount of car accidents. Right. There, mm -hmm. Which is just nuts to think about. It's sad, but, but nuts. Um, and I mean, is that, is that a result of just, um, you know, humans liking them a lot and being more tolerant of them being around lack of predators? Um, so it's a combination of things. Um, and white-tailed deer, unlike many predators, which after the colonization of the U.S., um, mm. predators declined sharply in lots of areas, except for the coyote. Um, coyotes are very resilient yeah. and adaptable to human yeah. spaces. Um, so coyotes have fared fairly well. Um, but most other predators declined partially because... They don't like people um, also because people hunted them. Mm -hmm. So there has been a large decline in predator species across North America, which one can only um, think would have helped the white-tailed deer, <laughs> although it can't just be predator declines because mule deer definitely haven't done as well as white-tailed deer. Sure. Um, and it's partially just that white-tailed deer are also very adaptable um, and they don't mind living in close proximity to people as mm -hmm. you will often see urban deer. Um, I just saw a deer the other day like in the cemetery. <laughs> so it's partially that and also like agricultural um, advancement like white-tailed deer do fairly well in uh, landscapes that have agriculture and um, they are sometimes considered pests and they really thrive in those like mixed landscapes where they have food and also cover from predators so they can hide. Um, and white-tailed deer are largely influenced by, by the amount of forest cover and availability of agricultural food resources um, amongst other things. So I guess white-tail like coyotes have kind of benefited from people changing things up across the landscape. Um, yeah, yeah. And also people do like to hunt them. So the North American model of wildlife conservation um, really led to the success of whitetail. Um, 
and the great <laughs> abundance of whitetail that we now see all the time, everywhere. Maybe too successful. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of funny because, um, like here in Minnesota, one of the one of the things with deer is, I mean, we have we have historic numbers in the state. Yet mm-hmm. every year, what I tend to hear from people is, you know, more difficulty in finding them, and and usually the fact that our our wolf population has been stabilizing is it's what's mm-hmm. then given the blame you know they say well the wolf population stabilizing so they're taking away our deer <laughs> then our deer surveys say that they're at historic levels uh-huh. um <laughs> and so there's a lot so, of odd stuff going on there there is some research that suggests um i mean bill ripple's paper on the ecology of fear um mm-hmm is very well known nowadays um being around for like 15 years but there's some argument over whether that actually the phenomenon is as like huge as it says it is Mm -hmm. but um there is some amount of behavioral ecology that would explain you know like if they got used to just humans hunting them then they'll behave differently to if wolves are present because humans only hunt deer during hunting season Mm -hmm. and deer are capable of learning when that temporal season is. Mm -hmm. They know that humans are hunting them in the hunting season and they know that the hunting season is the same time every year and it coincides right. They learn those things. Um, whereas with wolves, they're around all the time. So the deer have to keep moving, which is Mm -hmm. why even though you have historic numbers, people might see them less because they have to keep moving. Whereas when it was primarily people hunting them, they could just hang out more in the open. So, uh, speaking of like population trends, you know, Mm -hmm. here in Minnesota and I, I understand elsewhere like Maine and, um, parts of Canada, there's some downward trends in moose and caribou populations. It, it, does any of that have any, um, like do deer play any role in that with the competition or disease or anything? Um, so that is what Jason's lab are kind of looking at right now in the boreal mm-hmm. forest. Um, white-tailed deer haven't really been present in the boreal forest right before now. And as they're expanding into the boreal forest, like is that causing declines in caribou um, or interacting with things that are causing declines in caribou? So that's something they're working on. Um, I don't know if they've come to a definitive answer. That's one of those, like, I always send papers from Twitter to myself. Yeah. And then I do the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Terrible. Um, I have just like an inbox of emails from myself to myself of papers to read. Um, I also have one where I've downloaded the papers and it's in like a folder that says, read these papers. (laughs) Still haven't read them. Um, My bad. I'm happy to hear I'm not alone. (laughs) I I especially do the, you know, there's other easy ways to save it, but so frequently I just like email it to myself. (laughs) So I have just a whole like (laughs) folder in my inbox of just ones from me. that I haven't read yet. I'm like, okay. I know it's so bad. (laughs) Um, So I guess it's 
it's a little bit complicated, but um, one of the things that you probably see in the news a lot is like mountain caribou in southern British Columbia mm-hmm. um, have declined really steeply and some populations have been extirpated. And that was because of increased predation by wolves um, and cougars and stuff. But it was partially because of other cervids. So mountain caribou are like a unique ecotype and unlike other species that would avoid deep snow, Mm -hmm. mountain caribou actually remain at high elevation during the winter Mm. where the snow is deep and they eat like lichens lichens, (laughs) um, from the trees because they live in old growth forests um, and that helps them to avoid predation and they are specifically behaviorally adapted to that. Whereas other caribou from further north they don't have that same behavioral adaptation. They don't know to like go up high in the winter to avoid predators. Um, But with logging in British Columbia, like they've logged so many areas that are at high elevation and they've created linear features because of logging roads, which means that in these cut blocks, cut blocks are like really good habitat for other cervids like moose um, and white-tailed deer and yeah, black-tailed deer or mule deer. Um, so the wolves are up there looking for the moose, <laughs> the other servants, mm-hmm. um, the other deer, and then you get a parent competition. So, like, the wolves aren't going to turn down a caribou if they come across a caribou, oh, sure. which means that this behavioral adaptation which previously kept them away from predators doesn't necessarily work anymore because there are more predators around because of the presence of other servants oh Um, okay yeah so that makes sense super complicated yeah (laughs) um yeah um so in some cases there is an element of like as humans change landscapes Mm -hmm. and other species of cervids move in where they hadn't been before, you've got a parent competition um, which creates a situation where cervids that previously didn't deal with those predators now do. Um, And then the other interesting thing that I found out about, um, because generally speaking, even species that seem fairly similar yeah. will have slightly different niches so they're not directly competing with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, moose eat slightly different things to whitetail and that's why they can coexist in the same place. But I did find out about this meningeal brain worm um, and it doesn't cause problems in whitetail deer, but it's, like, fatal to mule deer and moose and elk. Huh. Yeah. That's so, uh, um, a little disturbing. <laughs> it needs a snail or a slug host um, to survive, but white-tailed deer could potentially ah. transmit this brainworm um, and it could result 
in increased mule deer mortality where they both exist in the same place because often white-tailed deer and mule deer exist in the same place um, out west. So, yeah, where that happens and you have a parasite or um, some sort of, I don't know, virus that is fine in one species and then in another species it causes fatality that can affect populations and you see that in the UK um, with squirrel pox we've seen like a huge decline in red squirrels because gray squirrels which are invasive um, they carry squirrel pox but they don't die whereas red squirrels have like little immunity to squirrel pox and then they get it and they die so like the gray squirrels aren't necessarily competing directly with the red squirrels but they carry this pathogen which affects red squirrels more than gray squirrels i never knew that squirrel pox was a thing and now this is why you shouldn't (laughs) release or rehab gray squirrels british people Mm. please don't do it stop it's illegal (laughs) ted um so so a lot of these um next questions that i have they are listener submitted questions and so Mm -hmm. if there are ones that you don't have an answer to or feel like answering (laughs) that's totally fine and you can rapid fire through any of them that you feel um you need to so no worries there um one thing though is i do remember reading that back in the day that people would kill elk and caribou and deer and what they would do is they would eat the semi-digested lichen out of their stomach Ew. which is super gross but i understand i mean if you're like you know in that situation i mean i guess i mean what do you do but still super gross but what i've been wondering is i mean do they have like a multi-chambered stomach like cows do yes so um bovidae and uh day are both ruminants so they both have um multi-chambered stomachs whereas something like a zebra those are hind gut fermenters um so they don't have the same like multi-chambered stomach um which affects how they contribute to the biogeochemical cycle i wrote a paper on this once and it was super interesting um (laughs) (laughs) yeah so deer do have multi-chambered stomachs like cows they're not grazing specialists like cows so bovids are specialized in grazing and cervids are specialized in browsing which is why they have such mobile lips so they can browse yeah i mean what what are they eating in general like a white-tailed deer i guess uh they browse on all sorts of things um, <laughs> um, they can eat like young grasses, um, and they can eat tree leaves. They can eat all sorts of things. Okay. Um, cervids in general, um, not just white-tailed deer are highly selective feeders on young grasses, herds, um, foliage, aquatic plants. So like moose really like to eat aquatic plants. Woody shoots, um, fruit, and natural um, ensilage, which is 
plant food that has low fiber but high protein content. So something like a forb. Um, let's see. So Becca McGar had a couple of questions. She said, when and where do they sleep? They're most obvious at dawn and dusk, but what are they doing between those times? <laughs> um, so I don't know uh, where. Okay. They just sleep on the ground. They don't like have a special place that they sleep. Um, they just sleep on the ground. Um Surprisingly so, like, there hasn't been a whole lot of research about how deer sleep. Um, but, yeah, they just sleep on the ground <laughs> and they, like, fold their legs up and they just lie down, um, basically. <laughs> <laughs> um, they are most obvious at dawn and dusk. So animals that are more active at dawn and dusk are called crepuscular and then mm -hmm. things that are active in the daytime are diurnal and things that are active at nighttime are nocturnal. Um, and what they do in the daytime <laughs> or in the nighttime kind of depends on where they are regionally okay. um, and what they're up to and what time of the year it is. So, um, those that live in seasonal climates spend most of their time during the winter and the spring resting um, because there's not enough forage to warrant like walking around looking for it. Um, so it's a lot to do with energy budgets, what they spend their time doing. Um, so in the winter, they'll display different behaviors. But when there's more forage available, I'll say, in the spring, they spend less time resting um, and have much higher activity rates. So it really does just depend on those metabolic rates. But for some like regional populations, like the deer that I study are in Oklahoma, they don't really have a lot of snow. <laughs> so um, deer in Oklahoma would be more active more of the time than deer like in Canada where I live. Let's see, uh, what is um, the gestation period for deer and how long are they carrying babies? Uh, so for white-tailed deer, the gestation period is approximately uh, 200 days. I don't mm -hmm. know how many months that is, but it's shorter than humans, <laughs> I think. <laughs> and then for mule deer, the gestation is usually about seven months. Okay. Um, Jessica Haig asked an interesting question about how the full moon impacts their behavior. And I'm, I'm assuming because I know her, what she's, what she's probably asking is, are they more active when it's brighter out or less active kind of a thing? That is a good question. Um, and I, I don't know the answer for deer because they're not nocturnal so I, I think for like nocturnal species the amount of light at night time definitely would influence um how active they are i would hazard a guess and say that they are potentially less active um during a full moon because they would be more obvious to predators with mm. the increased light well, that makes sense. um i'm actually not sure because lots of predators have adaptations to seeing in the dark. So it could be the complete opposite 
I know for frogs, um, when I used to study frogs, we would see, was it less or more? We would see differences in like how many frogs we saw depending on the amount of light at nighttime. But I, I don't know if that's true for deer. It's a very good question though. Uh, let's see. Kathy Roberts wants to know uh, two questions. When do bucks shed their antlers and how common are twins or triplets? So bucks usually shed their antlers um, after the mating season because they use their antlers to like fight each other. Um, so this will depend generally on when the mating season is and the mating season can be different depending on what regional population you're looking at. Um, so it could be in early December through to March, depending on which population you're looking at, um, how long they retain the antlers depends a lot on what they eat um, and also their genetics. And it usually takes two to three weeks to get rid of their antlers as the pedicle gradually disintegrates. Um, <laughs> it sounds really gruesome when you're thinking about it, but they don't actually feel any sort of discomfort. And then they grow new ones in the spring to prepare for a new mating season. Um, twins or triplets. So for white tailed deer, um, Twins are pretty common. Um, they're also fairly common in mule deer, but I looked up the exact number for white-tailed deer. Um, and as many to as 15 to 20% of white-tailed deer will actually have triplets, which is wild. Um, and they will have triplets when their numbers are in balance with high quality habitat. So, Twins are kind of the norm for whitetail and then they will actually have triplets. Whereas like with mule deer, twins are quite common, but it's not very common to see a mule deer with three. Morgan Lynn is wondering how does extreme cold affect a deer's ability to survive the winter? Um, so I guess depends <laughs> on the deer. <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> so... I mean, obviously for things that are adapted to the cold, like reindeer, um, mm -hmm. it won't make as much of a difference to them. <laughs> um, but for things like white-tailed deer, if they're living somewhere where there is snow in the winter and it's a really harsh winter, then that can decrease the population's survival rate. Um, so when we have really, really harsh winters or extreme cold you often see more winter mortality um in things like mule deer and white-tailed deer because in the winter they often if they um are in the mountains and they live at high elevation in the spring and in the summer when the food is lush they come down to lower elevations um in the winter to avoid the deep snow and there's not very good forage um, down low either, but in terms of energy budgets, it makes more sense for them to remain at a lower elevation. Um, but yeah, if it's an abnormally harsh or cold winter, you definitely see higher rates of winter mortality um, sure. in deer just because, you know, there's nothing to eat. Yeah, I mean, and that, that only they're makes expending sense. <laughs> more energy when it's really, really, really cold. Yeah, 
yeah. imagine. Um, Anna Lynch wants to know, I guess, an elaboration on the deer in the headlights saying, um, why, 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 <laughs> why, why are they always staring uh, at the headlights and, and, uh, they're the basically just like blinded by the light. Um, you know how like your pupils adjust to like daylight or yeah. when it's dark. Yeah. Um, so if your pupils have adjusted to it being nighttime and you're like walking around and it's dark and then all of a sudden a really bright light shines in your face, it basically uh-huh. is just like temporarily blinding them, um, oh. which is why they just stand there and they're like, ah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, Michaela Fay asked a bunch of questions. Um, <laughs> starting with, and we've talked about mule deer and white-tailed deer. How do you tell the difference between the two? Um, so in places where mule deer and white-tailed deer coexist, mm-hmm. um, I find the easiest way to tell is by the tail. So a mule deer will have a black tail and a white-tailed deer oh. will have a white tail. <laughs> that's, that's a really terrible answer um but i find that's the easiest way um to tell the difference they do have different gates um Mm. and they also have slightly different ears but i mean like trying to look for differences in their ears if you're not someone who's like (laughs) used to looking at deer is probably going to be difficult um but yeah I would say the the tail is the easiest and um, my friend Rhiannon Jacobak, she actually studies mule deer. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes, you heard that right. There is another Rhiannon that studies deer. I don't know. Maybe it's a thing. And she was talking to me the other day about how in really, really rare cases, mule and white-tailed deer can hybridize Mm -hmm. and when that happens, they have this weird like gate that's somewhere in between a mule deer and a white tailed deer. And they like <laughs> struggle to run away from predators because of that. Oh, that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there was one I missed. Anyway, uh, Anna Lynch had asked how fast can a deer run? So I guess just white tailed deer average. 40 miles an hour is oh, wow. they, they can run 40 miles an hour. I mean, they probably don't like to do that, but they can. <laughs> I did also see a question somewhere. I missed it. That was, where is it? Becca asked, what plants do deer not like if she would like to preserve her garden? Mm -hmm. Which I thought was an excellent question. Um, And I would definitely direct her to uwss.ca, which is an urban wildlife stewardship society in victoria um and british columbia and they have a whole page on deer resistant gardening and things you can use to repel deer without hurting the deer Um, and they even have a recipe for an all-in-one homemade deer repellent oh wow um so i would highly recommend that um if you're looking to keep deer away without hurting them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like there's kind of a, a dividing line between people who are like, can we please just not come into my yard? And then there's other people who are like, I'm setting out corn 
and I expect you to show up. Like, don't do that. Yeah. Do not yeah. feed deer. It's illegal in most states Thank and you. provinces. <laughs> I try telling people that, and they're like, "But I just want to see." Oh, drives me nuts. <laughs> if you want to see a deer, just open your eyes somewhere, and you'll you'll inevitably see one. <laughs> it doesn't need to be um, in the backyard. I also see on the topic of what you should and shouldn't do around a deer. Mm-hmm. Um, from Michaela, when you find a fawn in the wild, how do you know if it actually needs help or if it's just waiting for its mum? Mm-hmm. Um, deer are behaviorally adapted um, to hide from predators. That mm-hmm. is what they do. Um, some species, the babies will follow their parents and they have protection from predators that way. But for whitetail and mule deer, it's just the way they're adapted that they hide. So they'll hide the baby, mum will go off and forage and then come back and check on them and then go away again. Yeah. So like nine times out of 10, the fawn is not abandoned and you should just mm-hmm. leave it where it is. Um, I think Bambi ruined, ruined that for people. So people just automatically assume mom is gone. And <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So like in the great, great, great majority, of cases um mm-hmm. the fawn is absolutely fine and yeah you should just leave it there um and in a case where it is abandoned like the cases where a fawn is abandoned mm-hmm. are probably so rare that you'd be like you should just leave it there um and like they're probably super super rare to the point that like if you left it there and it was abandoned like you know, that's just part of the natural cycle. Um, yeah. Yeah. I would, Nature I would leave happens. it. <laughs> yeah. It's not like if you're in Australia and you, uh, and you hit a marsupial in your car, you should always get out and check the pouch because there can be babies in a pouch and then you can take them to a wildlife rehabilitation center and they'll rehabilitate those little babies. Um, yeah. But yeah, with fawns, it's best to just leave them. Um, let's see. Uh, that means that we're, we're pretty much at the closure here. And, and so mm-hmm. what I want to ask is, is, is there anything that is just like a bewildering, fascinating fact about deer that we didn't talk about that you think people would be interested in? And um, in general, you know, final thoughts, parting notes on conservation um, that you want to leave for people. <laughs> um. <laughs> Oh, what is like a cool fact that I know about deer? Um, I feel like I don't, I'm like, I have a terrible memory for these sorts of things. Um, I would say though that, you know, they are fast. I think people think of deer as like, oh, they're not scary because they don't have teeth and claws. And I would say the takeaway is like, even though they don't have tears and claws, teeth and claws, they will 100% hurt you um, if you get up in their face. So <laughs> try to give them their space. Um, I see quite often videos of people in Yellowstone and they go too close to the elk and then uh-huh. the elk charges them and they're like, oh, my God, why would they do that? And I'm like, because they don't want you up in their face. That is why. Um, yep. <laughs> And I'm sure it hurts. I know one of my friends once um, was 
out in the forest with their mountain bike and mm-hmm. they came across a deer buck during the breeding season and I don't know what happened, but um, this particular buck took a disliking to my friend and chased him and my friend ran up a tree. <laughs> 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 yeah so yeah definitely yes stay away from them give <laughs> a healthy respectful distance to the to the deer um there is something that the other Rhiannon was talking about that is mm-hmm. called the bambi effect where people like see bambi and then they're like oh they're so cute and cuddly and yeah. it influences the perception of like in general um (laughs) so bambi you're really not doing us any favors (laughs) that's like uh the story that my my wife has told me a few different times about her brother when they were little how he's in the back of the car and he'd been watching bambi a lot and he goes wait is deer hunting deer hunting (laughs) and their mom was like yep and he's like what (laughs) freaked out about yeah yeah i think uh I mean, Ali asked us, she said, like, uh, have you guys seen Bambi? And we said, no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Two dear biologists who have not seen Bambi with the same name. Um, Hilarious. (laughs) So I can't really comment on what happens in Bambi, but, yeah, unfortunate. (laughs) And that is where... We're going to wrap things up for today. So if you uh, want to check out some pretty interesting links that are related to today's episode uh, and content, or just to check out Rhiannon Curtin's information, her social media, check out the episode notes. There's all kinds of fun stuff in there, as well as links for how you can support the show. So with that, thank you for listening. Thanks once again to Rhiannon Curtin for the amazing conversation. And the, uh, I mean, I know that I appreciate deer on a whole other level. Um, ever since that conversation and I'm imagining that anyone listening to this part of the episode at this exact moment wherever that is and whenever that is also has a newfound appreciation for deer Um, so thank you thank you for that and uh, everyone else I hope you had a good holidays a happy new year and uh, peace out rainbow trout